What's Shaken Parkinson's podcast, where we explore information to learn about and to offer you a bi-weekly insight into the world of Parkinson's disease. Thanks for joining. Welcome to the What's Shaking Parkinson's podcast. Um, we are now on episode four. Uh, this is the uh, the one where we go deep in the house brain, as we uh, teased on last episode with DBS surgery. Uh, how how you doing today? Well, the main thing is they went deep into my brain. They found I, I do have one. <laughs> So that that that's very important. To Anyone start with. who's taking bets on that, uh, you know, I hope you bet on the on the. Has it side. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, I do have one. It's running pretty well. And in fact, I'm very proud of it right now because I did the DBS, as you're well aware, and I feel great. Awesome. The programming was done a week ago, Friday. And um, it's just, um, you know, it's not going to take, take, it's not going to get rid of the Parkinson's. So I got to find out how that's going to work as far as like what my, what my symptoms will be. You know, I mean, like I, I you know, I, I did have some episodes this week where um, you know, I did fall. Um, I do have some uh, tremors and things like that. So again, it's not going to take care of it. But compared to what I, where I was and where I am and where I'm going, it's a great thing. It's 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 it, it's miraculous. It really is. Outstanding. So that's wonderful. Um, this is also uh, the first where we're kind of like almost at live time now where. We had recorded all this stuff over a period of about six months, and we finally, you know, got we're live. Yeah, um, we're and then thank everybody who's uh, reached out to us in the last week. We're so thrilled to be able to bring this information out to the public, and so thrilled that you know a few of you have have listened in. Um, we've got about eight or nine states people are in, uh, including somebody in Ontario. Um, so again, uh, we really appreciate and. And are glad to be able to offer information to anyone who's looking for it. I want to make sure that you um, subscribe, follow, whatever the uh, the appropriate button would be for the format that you're using to listen to us. So that every time we drop a new episode, um, you'll get a reminder for that. I know in the intro we said bi-weekly. I don't know. We're you know, so excited about this. We may try to push that up and get them out a, a little sooner if possible. This will be weekly compared to the last one. And um, we're also in that uh, section where we're, uh, each episode is sort of related to the brain, um, no deeper than, than in this one, uh, and some sub subsequent episodes where uh, we'll get into um, things that affect the brain, uh, such as addiction, um, looking at hypnosis where we can explore uh, another avenue into the brain and the psyche. Uh, addiction, as I mentioned, um, genetic connections, which are brain and body, and uh, get a little more uh, into that mind-body connection um, with an interview with uh, someone who can uh, give us more experience on that. Uh, again, wanted to remind and, and reiterate that neither of us are medical experts. Uh, we do rely on our guests to be able to provide that content for us and to be able to offer that to you. Anything that Hal and I have to say is either uh, Hal's experience or opinion or something we've read. That's right, Frank. We're not we're not, we're not pros on this, but um, but we're, we're learning a lot every day. Also, that's for which sure. Is, which is very exciting. 
you know, my, my brain is working very well, and I'm picking up a lot of different things. Um, but I did get some people who who did ask us about ask me during the week that they um they want to um know like how they're going to get into the um to the podcast the next one for coming up. So I'm glad you uh, addressed on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're we're found on uh, Apple Podcasts under What's Shaking Parkinson's. Just do a, a search for that and. Our little logo comes up, which is a green rectangular background with a, a picture of a, a head and some shaking, a hand inside and some uh, some uh, vibrations outside of that. Uh, we're also on uh, Podbean, uh, and that link is uh, available. We'll post that, but we have to post it somewhere. So you can either uh, follow us on Hal's Facebook page, uh, which is what's shaking Parkinson's, uh, you can look me up on LinkedIn. I post it there as well and look for my post. And that's Frank B. Martin. And um, we're thrilled to be able to share this information with everybody. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for your time, for your questions. You can write to us. I'm not sure really where to write. Uh, uh, well, those those places. Okay. Um, Facebook. And <clears throat> I'm sorry, once you do get on the podcast, of course, we can answer questions uh, right through the podcast itself, you'll um, you'll see places to leave comments, and we're thrilled to, to have them and to answer them. Absolutely, absolutely. So without further ado, let's uh, get into Dr. Sharan's interview. I'm ready. All ready right, we'll talk to you afterwards. Sorry, first there is one other place you can email us, which is whatshakenpodcast at protonmail.com. Thanks. We have a special guest with us today who's going to get very familiar with uh, with your inside of your brain, which has been a mystery to a lot of people over the years. <laughs> Frank, we got a heavy hitter here. I'm very excited. Very excited. This man has been, um, he's known hes known throughout at least the neurological world. And uh, let me introduce to you, Dr. Sharon. Dr. Sharon, thank you for joining us on the What's Shaken Parkinson's podcast. <laughs> My pleasure. That's a funny name. <laughs> we try to like, keep it light. Like Blazing Saddles. I meant to mention that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wonderful movie, though. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So tell me, what brought you to Philadelphia? You know, I've been stuck in Philadelphia. I, I tell the story uh, for uh, probably 25 years now. Oh, I really? did my, yeah, I've been doing my neurosurgery. I did my neurosurgery uh, training. Uh, at Thomas Jefferson. And right. then I went, I, I escaped for a year. I went to um, Cleveland Clinic. I actually did two fellowships there. One was to learn deep brain stimulation and one to specialize a little bit more in spine. And then, uh, you know, they didn't have a deep brain stimulation program in Philadelphia. So, um, so I came back to start the program here. Um, and I've been stuck here since. <laughs> you know, it's a great city. I know you yes. say that in jest, but it really is a great city. I hope you're uh, enjoying it here. And um, I did not know that you started the neurological, uh, the the neurological DBS practice. The right. DBS practice, yeah. The DBS wow. in Philadelphia. And uh, you're, you're, you're going to uh, put me under the, under the uh, break some holes in my head on uh, Tuesday. Yeah, at least two, unless you need more. Okay, <laughs> very good. Very, we uh, don't charge by the number of holes. <laughs> So when you drill, um, you know, coming from the mechanical end and construction end of things, yeah. 
when you drill a hole in one place, you need to sort of have a hole in another for venting purposes. I'm assuming the skull does not need that. There's already other holes, obviously, in the skull. So you don't need to yeah, worry yeah. about that. But do you get gushing like immediately as soon as you, you start drilling? No, no, it's a, it's a, it's a good question, uh, Frank. It's um, there's the what this is the funny thing that people don't know. The brain is actually floating inside your skull, wow. right? So it's floating in a bag of fluid. And people know this as spinal fluid, but mm-hmm. technically it's called CSF, cerebral spinal fluid. Uh-huh. So you do get some of the cerebral spinal fluid that flows out. It doesn't quite gush out, uh, you know, like a geyser, uh, <laughs> but it, fluid does come out. Interesting. Um, and just to finish it up, because people, I don't want anybody getting the wrong idea, but, uh, you know, the fluid is like saliva. And you know how you're constantly making saliva and you're recycling it. You're just swallowing it and your stomach absorbs it. And so the same thing, the brain is constantly making this cerebral spinal fluid, which is washing and giving nutrients, you know, at some level to your brain, right? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So there is a little gush. (laughs) So it's it's totally like like regenerating sort of? Yeah. Okay. So like what is like, like how long does that take? Like, like, is that like the hours or like for, 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 for do like the whole bit of fluid that we have in our head? So you make about a can of Coke of fluid. So most of the skull is actually the brain. So it's not like it's a, it's a pond, you know, but uh, it's a thin rim of fluid that's actually around there. So it, by volume, it's not so much, right? But imagine one can of Coke a day. That's how much fluid you make. Wow. Yeah, it's a okay, lot. Very good. <laughs> yeah. Um, did Dr. Wu start this, um, did, did, the, um, did the practice with you also? How did that start up? So, you know, I've been training residents uh, for a number of years. And as the practice grew about, uh, I think it's probably five and a half years ago. So Dr. Wu came from Tufts and he wanted to do neurosurgery. Mm-hmm. And not only did he want to do neurosurgery, he wanted to specialize in deep brain stimulation, epilepsy, spinal cord stimulation. So the type of technology that you're going to get, um, it's also applicable to many other disease states. And so that is called functional neurosurgery. And Mm -hmm. most centers that do functional neurosurgery only do one or two. There's almost uh, very few training programs that do as many of all the above. And so, you know, epilepsy, Parkinson's and Mm -hmm. uh, pain. And so that's why I think he chose to stay here. And, uh, he was talented enough or very talented. So we decided then uh, that we're going to invest in him and keep him. And during that process, I actually sent him to two centers in the, in the country that were changing the technique. So about five to eight years ago, people were shifting from doing awake surgery to a sleep surgery. Mm-hmm. And I said, listen, let go learn it. I don't know if these guys are doing a good job or not. And, you know, I say that tongue in, tongue in yes, cheek, sure. but uh, let's learn what makes them able to do this art that I learned back in 2000 to do it awake. What makes them so special that they can do everything asleep? So we sent him to uh, Portland, Oregon, uh, where there's a very famous neurosurgeon named Kim Burchell. And we sent them to uh, UCL, uh, University College of London, which uh-huh. uh, Dr. Hariz uh, Marwan Hariz is the professor over there. And uh, he learned their techniques. And then we created a hybrid technique at Jefferson. 
Very interesting. It's yeah. the background, how he got started in, in, in Philadelphia is very interesting. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So do you, doctor, also um, work with patients with other movement disorders besides Parkinson's? Um, we see patients with dystonia. Um, every once in a while, we'll treat a patient with tardive uh, dyskinesia. Um, and then there's another condition called spasticity. Mm-hmm. And so we deal with spasticity. Spasticity is often with patients who have multiple sclerosis. Um, so our, the surgical options are mainly for those you know, few patient types. And does DBS have a similar, call it tra- success record, um, a way of, of improving people's lives? No, no, that's an awesome question. So the world experience with, let's start with dystonia, um, is much less. Now, dystonia is not even one-tenth as common as Parkinson's disease. Sure. And um, if you have a genetic dystonia, so there's some families that carry a gene that mm-hmm. allows a part of their brain called the basal ganglia to be dysfunctional. And those patients have a very predictable response rate, probably 80% or higher. Now, if you have a non-genetic dystonia, then bets are off. You know, the results could be as low as uh, no response. It could be as middle as 40, 50% response. It could be a high as 70, 80%. So we don't have a good biomarker that can predict how well you'll do. Um, you know, people who have uh, spasticity, depending on the type of spasticity, we don't do DBS. We infuse medications, you know, around their spinal cord in their brain called baclofen. And that has a very predictable response, you know, probably 70, 80% improvement in spasticity. I so believe the that's a mu- I'm sorry. I believe that's a muscle relaxer. It's a muscle relaxer, except for we're bypassing your stomach and your liver. So the medicine is being infused into the uh-huh. CSF, into the spinal fluid directly. Very interesting. Yeah. Now, um, do you think the upper spine just changes change a little bit? A cure for Parkinson's? Would we ever find a cure? Um, I I want to phrase the question a different way because I don't think we know what causes Parkinson's. We don't right, know why. That's the... really what I was trying to get at. Yeah. That's what I should have asked. Yeah. So, but I think um, I, I bet you my gut instinct is that when we start study aging, because you know there's mm-hmm. a lot of people who are actually now studying aging and how right. to slow down aging, and that as we learn how to slow down aging. I bet you we'll find ways to affect different aspects of different diseases. And Parkinson's is one of them. Everybody's dopamine will run out. And it's a matter of some people having it sooner or later. But I think before a cure, we'll probably find gene therapies so that you inject the gene back into the brain to start producing dopamine. Hal, I think that will come sooner. Oh, okay. That'd be, that'd be, I'm, I'm ready and waiting. Yeah. And that will actually help just as much. Um, but it's technically not a cure because you're not necessarily solving the problem. <laughs> right. I see. I but see. it won't be bad. It won't be bad. Well, it's just like the, I, the first thing they say when you read the DBS information is like, there is no cure and we're not solving a cure. Yeah. But, um, but you know, I've been reading quite a bit about it and um, I'm very excited and looking forward to Tuesday. I have a, I have a, I have a couple little, uh, you know, little weird vibes in my head, you know, to get my, uh, had you know uh, three holes put in there or whatever but um two holes <laughs> yeah you did tell me you did say that but i'm looking forward to the operation i really am i mean it's it's a tough disease and um i i'm looking forward to getting past it and having a better quality of, of living right 
to the um, the wiring that you use to make the connections to depend are, is that dependent upon the patient and which body parts are um, in need of better control and assistance or is there more of a standard process on that? I think it's, it's it's more or less standardized, Frank. I there there are two separate. So the way I explain to patients is there's um, so there's a very complicated circuit that controls movement, and so I'm going to take a step back and explain that for a second. Good. So when you decide to touch your nose, your brain says, "Oh, I'm going to move this finger to my nose." Now in that way. The brain is con- like when you're moving, you can you can change the trajectory a million times, right? And then you center on your nose. So think about that. There's a sub circuit that's dealing with, uh, you know, maybe pitch and yaw. There's a sub segment that's dealing with the speed at which it goes. So there's all these different facets of motion that also are constantly invoked when you're moving from the target, you know, to, from the target from the beginning to the target. Right. So that part of your brain is called the basal ganglia, and that part is affected in Parkinson's disease. That's why you have tremor, you have bradykinesia, you have rigidity. So the different subcomponents are affected. Now, in that circuit, just by luck, just to be clear, um, and then proven eventually by animal experiments, and then come back to human. So it was sort of human observations going back to the animals and testing it and then coming back into people, we know there's two nodes that very are very predictable to helping tremor, rigidity, dyskinesia, you know, mm-hmm. very consistently and almost consistently gives you the effect that dopamine gives on your body. So it's a question be- between those two nodes that we have to choose from. Now, most centers don't actually choose between the two nodes, they just do the send, they do the node that they're most familiar with. Uh-huh. The, the difference between the two nodes, let's say one had given you a score of 71, the other one sometimes gives you a 65, and let's say one node gives you a, a 65 sometimes, and the other one gives you a 75. So it's not like there's a big range between the two nodes. Sure. So mm-hmm. because of that, most centers do the one that they are most comfortable with, right? Because if you're not as comfortable with the other target, you know, like if I'm if I'm shooting, you want to go and use the the tool that you're used to using, right? Because sure. it fits in your hand a certain way. Right. And so, but in our center, we're comfortable with both targets, and so we actually try to micro manage or micro maximize even that extra five ten percent. Uh huh. But there's basically two circuits that have been explored for Parkinson's consistently, and then every few years, somebody comes out with a new circuit. It becomes the craze for a while. Uh, but honestly, no new node has stood the, you know, stood the test of time yet. That's the problem. Right. So, do you have one um, upper node? Um, do you have one that you you, you 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 have experience with both of them? Yeah. Um, do you, is there one you use them more frequently or anything like that? So I, I'll just, I'll put names on them. It's called STN subthalamic nucleus. Right. And GPI, right. globus pallidus internus. Yes. And if I have done, let's say, just 500, I've done more than 500, I think. But if I had done 500 Parkinson patients, I bet you uh, 60% of them or 65% were STN. In the beginning mm-hmm. of our career, when we learned in training, 
SDN was the more familiar node. So we all did it. And then we got familiar over time with GPI. And so that's probably why it's like 6535. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just because of time. You know, back in 2000, when we first started doing them, uh, it was very uncommon. It was probably like 90-10 GPI, yeah. you know? So, but now, practically speaking, now that, if you look at my career, if you look at the last, uh, if you look at the last five years, 60% of the cases are now GPI and 40% of the cases are STN. Mm -hmm. We have gotten away from STN um, because STN tends to more likely cause mood and cognitive problems in the individual. So, uh -huh. so that we've gotten away from STN because, you know, now that we know that GP, we're getting better at GPI, really, why sort of even take the risk of affecting the way you think and how you feel? And GPI is more for tremors or? Um... GPI and uh, STN both give you one-to-one -one same tremor control. They don't vary. So can you talk a little about the, the equipment? I, I, Hal and I have, I, Hal certainly has, has reviewed forms and papers and videos and, and listened to you and, and his other doctors. I've watched a video that Dr., uh, a Zoom meeting that Dr. Wu had conducted to get an understanding. But for the benefit of our audience, um, what is this machinery? How does it uh, connect? And, right. and what control will it give Hal over the, the tremors and, and other advantages? Yeah, so let me, I'll start with basic and get complicated. And, <laughs> and depending on how complicated you want, we can stop. <laughs> but uh, so the electrode that goes into your brain to give you a visual is 1.3 millimeters in diameter, mm -hmm. right? So that is smaller than... It's, it's about a third the size of a linguini. You know, I guess you can have fat linguini if you want, but uh, it's, it's pretty small linguini. Um, and that electrode goes in about uh, eight centimeters into the brain. So maybe about four inches. Um, on average, that's, you know, depending on the target, it could be a little bit less or a little bit more. So it's a very small electrode. Now, and the, the contact tips are made out of platinum uh, and iridium. And the reason is that is because platinum is one of the best conducting metals. It's actually a better conductor than gold. And so that's yeah. why it's created out of platinum. And they put little specks of iridium in it because it makes it strong enough. So the breakage rates are fairly low. Otherwise, it'd be too soft. Sure. Um, and having said that, we want a very soft metal in the brain because we don't want it to shear your brain. Because right. every time you breathe and move, your brain moves. So you want the wire to be able to move inside the brain. So it's designed that. And... The other thing I like to tell people, and, and more this is more for the technical aspects of it, really, is when you're putting something long access through the brain, it doesn't damage. It actually splits the wire. So it's not a sharp wire. It's a very blunt, round, perfect rounded edge. Uh -huh. Now, then we actually anchored the, the electrode to the skull because you don't want it to pull out or move. Um, then you pull it down underneath the skin, so somewhere behind the head, and then there's an extension cable. The reason there's an extension cable because that wire is stronger because that's going to bridge across your neck. Uh -huh. And, you know, you're always moving your head side to side, up and sure. down. Sure. And so that part has the potential to break because of the movement. So they made it much more robust. Um, that's the part that patients, if they feel it, they may feel a little ridge underneath their skin. And in the beginning, I think people notice it and then they just become, it becomes part of their body. And then the, so, and then the last component is underneath the clavicle bone, 
Um, mm-hmm. There's a battery, and it's about the size of a chocolate chip cookie, you know, uh, from Nabisco. Um, <laughs> but so those are the components. Now, there are three companies that make and manufacture uh, the device, and they're getting very, very close to the features. Like, um, and, and also, if somebody watches this podcast a year from now, it will also be different, I'm sure, from what I say. And, and this, is, this is the great thing for patients today. For the decade that I started operating in 2000, only Medtronic created the implant. Then somewhere around 2015-16, Abbott got an FDA-approved product. And then the very next year, I think 2016 or 17, Boston Scientific got an FDA-approved product. Now, and every time somebody comes in with their new product, it's always a little bit better than the product before. Sure. Um, and so there was a lot of differentiation between the products, I think, in the first, in the last five years. Um, today, I think, is getting much less less. I, I bet you all three companies have uh, an incredibly small differentiation factor. Um, and I can talk about that if you want. But basically... Um, the electrodes have actually changed since I was first in practice, which is a big thing to, for everybody to know. And all three companies now have the same electrode. So basically, yes. if, you took an, if you took an antenna, right, you know that the signal goes all around, right. 360 right. degrees, right? And so a big differentiator that happened was if you took an antenna, can you shift the current in a particular direction? Uh-huh. So now they're called directional electrodes. Um, five years ago, everybody had a non-directional electrode and Abbott in Boston, their innovation was to have directional electrodes. So they came in with an improvement. Um, today, all three companies have directional electrodes, uh-huh. <laughs> for example. Um, then there's a question of the battery. How good is the battery? How long is the battery life? And Initially, the companies only had not, uh, non-rechargeable batteries, batteries that would last about three and a half to five and a half years. And then required then, surgery to replace. And then you have to have surgery to replace. And then Boston Scientific came to the market with a rechargeable battery. Then Medtronic uh, created a rechargeable battery. Right now, Abbott does not have a rechargeable battery, so that's potentially you know, a differentiator. Uh-huh. But I'm sure in a year... When we somebody listens to this talk, they're going to be like, "That's old news," because and they're always, you know, they're always just copying each other. Honestly, um, so the battery has a rechargeable and a non-rechargeable option, and and we can talk about that too. Um, the extension wire has also gotten better. So when Medtronic had their old extension wire, it was a technology from 1997. Um, Abbott came out with a new one. Boston came out with a newer one, and Medtronic has finally also come out with a new one. So I think all three companies are probably equivalent uh, for that. Uh, another thing that's also very important for the patients to think about and consider is called MRI compatibility. So this is a wire inside your brain. And so you're effectively also an antenna sure. to certain frequencies of you know, uh, magnetic waves. And so there was a time when there was a big distinction between MRI compatibility Medtronic probably has the broadest portfolio of MRI compatibility, uh, followed by Abbott, followed by Boston. So, you know, if you wrote a chart, it'd be one of those charts that people would have three checks, two checks, one checks, depending on, mm-hmm. the, on the qualifications. And the most newest thing is called 
remote programming. So this is where Abbott is a little bit ahead of the curve. Mm-hmm. Like you could be in your home, you can put the i uh, the iPad. It's not an iPad, an iPhone that actually talks to your device. I can log in. I can allow you know we me and you can telehealth like this, and then I can have you put your hand up, and I can slowly increase the stimulation parameters wow. to remote control at home. Sure, so yeah. that's the newest feature. Um, you know, I, I think COVID helped get that for patients really fast. I personally find it uh, appreciated. Like, I don't, you know, if you need a small adjustment, I don't know. Look, I'd love to have you come to my office in, in Philadelphia, but I don't know if it's necessary to get you to, you know, spend, you know, going to a doctor visit in Philadelphia is not like across the street. Certainly, yeah, certainly well. not for, for someone who's, you know, challenged moving around to begin with. Oh, no. And imagine as you get older, um, you don't want your grandfather driving in Philadelphia or <laughs> grandmother, <laughs> right? And then crossing the streets, it's not like everybody's like, oh, yeah, let me wait. So <laughs> the patient can cross the street, right? So so I think for practices, um, remote programming is a real thing. I'll, I'll tell you something that I heard. We just came back from our annual meeting. Um, that's why it was so hard to get a hold of Hal. But, uh, you know, at the annual meeting, you know, somebody just presented data on you know, patients who live farther from university, uh, there's data now, you know, when they show demographic split of DBS, sure. um, there's an absolute correlation that, that the further you are from a major center, the less likely your doctors will ever, you know, even think about or refer you for surgery, right? Mm-hmm. Because most people don't want to drive two hours or obviously right. three hours is a lot, right? That, which makes sense. Um, and also depending on, um, I don't know what the right way to say it is, but the the fiscal richness of your neighborhood also. Mm-hmm. So there's a major disparity on the number of patients who have access to DBS based on where they live. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe remote programming allows that to close a little bit, right? Because at le- you might have to still go to the major center for your surgery, sure. but at least then it can be ma- uh, monitored and you know managed later. So I think that until every, I mean, and, and just so you know, I bet you within one to two years, every company will have, remote management uh-huh. also. So I think these are some of the nuances of the equipment um, that exists right now, at least. And battery recharging, um, is that the same way you monitor and you're able to, in consulting with the patient, look at what the uh, the charge is on their battery? That's right. So um, the battery will tell you how much charge they have. It has a bar. So uh-huh. the patients know that it's fully charged or not. Um, we try to get patients uh, to charge 10, 15 minutes every day. So they never run out. Sure. Right. It's like, you never want to run out of your pill box either. Right. Because that's right. a disaster. Right. Um, yeah. That's right. That's a disaster. <laughs> right. Um, but if you didn't charge every day, if you charge once a week, then you might have to sit down for two hours uh-huh. and charge. And basically there's, it's called the inductive charging. So you put something on top of the battery um, and it just charges through the skin. Uh-huh. And you never want it to sit too long because you've also probably charged your phones. It gets hot eventually, right? With right. the energy transfer, yeah. Right. So, um, but the advantages of rechargeable batteries are nine to 15 year battery life instead of four to five. Wow. Now, I'm going to say something which is now my opinion, and this is uh, people will see this very differently. Um, I personally think that a non rechargeable is better for more patients. Not so that we can reoperate on you every four or five years, uh-huh. but I think there's so much competition in the industry right now for improvements that I think you want the option of having an upgrade 
every sure. four or five years. Sure. Uh, so I say that softly because that requires surgery. But if you have a rechargeable battery that lasts 10, 15 years, it's hard to justify to an insurance company why you should get that upgraded, right? Even um, though the technology has improved that you can get a better product. That's right, right? Because if it's, if it's doing what, if it ain't broken, don't fix sure. it, right? Sure. So, so there is a definitely uh, balance, you know, what's the right thing. And, and then the other part of the rechargeable technology that I have personally heard from patients is that, you know, look, I know you have, you live with the disease when you have Parkinson's and you know you have it every day. But then you yep. need to have to go through a ritual, meaning charge it every day. Mm -hmm. Because in a way, you're almost, I don't want to say you're worshiping the disease, right? But you're adding this ritual thing. And if you go travel, you have to take the charger with you. So yeah. there's a little bit of an overhead to having a chargeable system. But it also depends. Like, let's say your medical conditions getting worse, and you don't know if you can tolerate a surgery in four or five years, um, even though it's a small surgery, right? Then you might just say, look, let me just stay with the rechargeable and, you know, see what happens. Right. So I, I think depending on your life situation, things could change also. Mm -hmm. And Abbott is the only one right now who is, is who's manufacturing a. Um... Um, all three companies have non rechargeables. Only Medtronic and Boston have a rechargeable. Uh, only Met uh, Abbott has remote programming. Remote programming. That's, that's what yeah. I meant. Yeah. Yeah. And you like that. Yeah. I, I think it's a better option for you because any one time if you miss an appointment, the doctor can still log into your device with your approval and, and help you. Well, when, when, when do you make that decision? Yeah, so so we can talk it offline if you want. So we have we can go through yes. more questions. Yeah, that'd be great. That'd be great. Yeah, we'll talk to you offline. Yeah. It's yeah. Great to know you have choices. It's you know, it's not one piece of equipment, and and this is what it'll do, and and these are all the negatives that it has. You have at least the ability to look at a few different options and and weigh the benefits of each of them. That's right. And, the, you know, at least um, from a cost and uh, choice perspective, Medicare nor private insurance are dictating what you have to have, right. which is, and I'm not sure that's going to exist forever either, but at least now um, they are allowing the doctor and the patient to make that decision. Wonderful. That, yeah. that is very nice to hear because I know, I, you know, it's not a, it's not a cheap um obviously operation that uh, we're going through. I feel very lucky to have the opportunity to go through this. Absolutely. Yeah. You're, um, you, you meet all the criteria to be from what everything we understand, the, the ideal candidate for it. Uh, and you're, you know, you're in a great uh, position to be able to take advantage of that. Right. Absolutely. Dr. Sharan, um, we are, are so appreciative of, of you being here Um allowing us to get a better insight into what Hal's going to be going through in two days. And we'll be uh, speaking with him after that. And uh, I'm sure he'll not remember anything about the surgery, but uh, <laughs> we'll be able to tell us about uh, all the improvements that uh, will be in his life as a result of this. And uh, we thank you for, for that as well as for your time here today. Yeah, no, you for your time, doctor. No, no, my pleasure. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's worth even journaling, you know, the way you're feeling during recovery, the good and the bad, uh, because there are good days, there are bad days. You know, recovery, I tell people, it's not always just a straight line, but it's a it's a line that has little bumps, but it, it tends to go up and then, then, then becomes the calibration of the device. The device has to be programmed. Uh, right. That's also part of the journey. But, uh, you know, so it's one of those things, but uh, it's very, it's a predictable operation. It's a, a very predictable results. And, um, 
you know, I, I think in general, you know, the other great thing that we learned, um, there's a gentleman, his name is David Charles. Um, he's the vice chair of neurology at Vanderbilt. And he showed, uh, he published this last year in the Annals of Neurology that uh, they even started doing it for patients with very early Parkinson's disease. And their tremor is arresting. Oh, really? And the way they know this is, you know, this this is patients when they first got diagnosed with a tremor, basically. Mm -hmm. And uh, they bring them in every year and they uh, keep them in a hotel. They provide nursing support. And the patients agree to this. They turn off all their meds and their Parkinson's devices. And then they measure, you know, one group had surgery and one group did not have surgery. And uh, the group who had the surgery, their tremor is also not coming back. Wow. You know, so by doing it early, maybe perhaps you're preventing some of that damage inside the brain. And so that, that they're, they're aiming to do that. You know, I I think they did um, 30 plus patients. And so they're Mm -hmm. aiming to do it on a few hundred patients, you know, do it as a big study because then the statistics become powerful. But I think that's the, you know, just to give your users also some perspective, uh, deep brain stimulation was approved for tremor, also for another disease, essential tremor, um, in 1997, right? So that's like 24 years now of experience. And just to give you a perspective, when I first started learning how to do this operation, it used to take us about four hours per side. So eight hours of surgery time now it takes under three. Nice. nice. You know, so so that's the kind of advancement that's happened, you know, from the 2000 era to two decades later. So, so a lot of improvement and in, in, in probably a lot more to come, you know, in the next decade also. My father had essential tremors and back around that time probably started looking into the surgery and decided not to uh, go through yeah. with it. But it was very new. You know, uh-huh. even Michael J. Fox decided not to have the surgery uh-huh. at that time. Yeah. Did he have the DBS? No, he had a pallidotomy. You know, so he had the he had that part of his brain burned, you know, lesioned. Wow. Oh, okay. Yeah. He chose not to have DBS. His neurologist advised him against it uh, because there wasn't enough long-term data at that time. Right. And by burning, he can't have the the the, the, the um operation again. That's exactly right. Right. So he needs a restorative therapy, right? He needs us to put a stem cell in there, right. mm-hmm. you know, not even gene therapy, right? Because the cells are dead. So you would need to put a stem cell to grow new cells. Right. Do you see something like that on the horizon? Um, people are working on it, Hal. Um, it's highly complicated because the cells have to grow and then stop. Right. Right. So it's not just a matter of injecting stem cells mm-hmm. to replace that area is how do you control them? Sure. Um, so that's why I think injecting a gene uh, might be easier um, and sooner than actually stem cells. But people are working on both. Uh, there are actually active trials on in Europe. Uh, I, I'm not sure that there's any for Parkinson's yet in the U.S., but but if they're probably right around the corner. I, I've been approached uh, every other year from some company interested in it. And of course, you know, they need a lot of money to do these studies and trials. Sure. And so... Um, I'm not aware of anybody that's executed on it yet. Well, again, we thank you. Um, you This has been an incredible uh, learning experience and I appreciate you very much, your time. And um, we're looking forward to some positive results, as I said. Doctor, thank you very much. Um, You're welcome. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. 
And that was Dr. Ashwini Sharan, um, the expert on deep brain stimulation, the surgeon who uh, drilled into Hal, and, and Hal's lived to tell about it. <laughs> he, he is a terrific man, Frank. I mean, he's a brilliant man, obviously, you know, but, but he, he's so... Um, He's so relaxed and just so so calming, and, and he's got a wonderful smile, and he just gives you a good, confident feel, you know, before he um, operates on you, which is what you want. Nice. I loved how he um, he spoke in layman's terms. Yes. You know, he he talked to us via Zoom, and and things we understood where he can relate it. I, he related a lot of things to food. I know. <laughs> uh, can of Coke. Yeah. Uh, linguine. Yeah. Chips Ahoy. Uh, and Nabisco, if you're listening, yeah, we, we would love to accept your sponsorship for this. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was interesting how you purposely um, put down and mentioned Nabisco. because that's his weak spot. <laughs> but he's a terrific guy. And um, I, I, I feel very lucky um, to be able to have gone through the surgery. Very lucky to have um, come out of the surgery. <laughs> <laughs> And, um, you know, but, but no, all, all seriousness, I, I'm, I'm a blessed man who, 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 who's got some great people behind them trying to help me out here and, um, trying to, um, do whatever they can to help me get through this, this, um, this thing. And, um, I'm doing a great job. Uh, I got to pat myself on the back. Nice. So when you did come out, I know you had some, um, as anyone who goes through surgery had inflammation, um, some days of recovery. And for the most part, you know, you had to wait, uh, was two weeks until they turned the battery on? Four weeks. Four weeks. Four weeks I waited and they turned wow. the battery on. So I was programmed and um, it's very, very interesting how they do that program. You know, I had to go there without any meds. So I went to Jefferson Hospital and um, I woke up very early in the morning, went down there. And, um, you know, it was very difficult for me being on my meds for every day for the past five and a half years or whatever. So it was very difficult to, um, to do that. Um, but I did it and, um, I was a little nervous about it, but everything went well. The doctor was with me for about an hour, hour and a half. And what he did was he, he, he wanted a baseline. So he went with me and he just asked me a lot of questions when I'm, I'm off my meds. And um, just, um, you know, it was, it was more like when you go to an eye doctor and they say, they flip the eye, the glasses over, mm -hmm. you know, which is better, one, two, which is clear, whatever. So that's what he's asking me. And he also asked me, um, he goes, you know, I'm learning as, as we do this also, Hal, the doctor said to me. So he said, you know, there's we, you know, let me know if you feel what you feel, if you're, anything happens. And ironically, it was pretty cool, actually. I felt my right eye shutting. And I said to myself, my right eye's shutting. And he said, um, yes, it is. <laughs> you know, he, he, he was playing with my eye because he, he is in control of, I guess, an electrode or whatever that controls that. And, um, and he was just, you know, just playing with my eye. I'm playing with your mind. Yeah, playing, yeah, you know. You know, if I got my eye out for him, I'll get, after, I'll get him. <laughs> um, but it was very interesting. You know, I had a little draw. You know, he was playing with that. Um, although he said he, he wasn't actually, but it felt that way. Um, but, you know, but we, we did all, the, all that. And then after we were finished, um, and the, um, the representative, Carl, uh, who's a very good guy, um, he, he's a representative from um, Abbott. A little shout out to Abbott. And um, 
they um, so they represented in, in, in this um, procedure. Of course, he was at the procedure. And he was also at the programming, and he was very helpful. He he see more of these than obviously the doctor. I think so. Um, you know, it was good for him to for good for him to help the doctor. Now, um, then they said to me, "Okay, how long does it take for your meds to kick in?" I said, "Usually about thirty minutes." He goes, "We're gonna come back in thirty minutes when your meds when your meds are on." And um, then we're going to um, ask you some of the same things. So then they got another baseline with me on my meds. Mm-hmm. So um, so it was very interesting. Amazing. And and you're, um, you show me an app on your phone. Um, yep. So you now have the ability to tweak those well, two different nodes. Yes, yes, and no. I do have the um, I do have the ability. I don't have the knowledge. He doesn't want me messing with it, mm-hmm. which I tend to do. So I, I'm not going to, and I haven't for the past week. Um, so, so yes, I, 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 I do have that ability and I can call him and he could do it from his office, you know, wherever, you know, wherever he is, wherever I am. And that's one of the reasons why I did go with Abbott because, um, you know, that remote capability. Yeah. That, that's very good. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, you know, as he said, like each company is coming out with different advances and they're all going to be like similar in a way. You know, just maybe an update on it, but um, he thought it was very important for me to do this, so I agreed with him, and mm-hmm. um, that's well with Abbott. Awesome. Um, he had, uh, as well as uh, I believe it was Dr. Ratliff, um, where we started discussing "quote unquote" cures. Yes. For Parkinson's, and uh, they both more or less inferred that there's no cure, uh, and there won't be anything that is doesn't leave you reliant on supplementing your, your body's dopamine yes. and your ability to produce dopamine. Uh, I had recently read an interesting article from Science Translation Magazine publication. I uh, read them all the time. <laughs> uh, this is a uh, neurologist at Johns Hopkins, uh, and it's a study on a compound called Farnesol, F-A-R-N-E-S-O-L, and it's found naturally in berries and other fruits. And in testing on mice, um, they found that it reverses brain damage linked to Parkinson's in mouse studies. That's um, very interesting. It Good to really know. is, yeah. So you know, they test on animals in order to see you know, what eventually can be done for humans, uh, as well as other animals um, who go through um, issues. Uh, it, the, this Farnesol is used in flavorings and perfume making, interestingly. Uh, that, that's a little scary, I think. <laughs> well, it's beneficial. Uh, it prevents loss of neurons that produce dopamine in brains of mice by deactivating Paris, a protein uh, involved in Parkinson's uh, progression. Ah. Yeah, so I thought that was a fascinating article, and uh, I believe somebody had posted on LinkedIn, so whoever that was, I appreciate you getting that information out. That's going to tie into, I'll just give, give a little, 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 little tease, but we have a scientist that's going to be on. We do. We have a couple scientists. Yes. Um, one who um, studies uh, the brain and the effects of um, different uh substances on the brain in the form of addiction. Uh, We'll have someone who's um, talking about more of the genetic link Mm -hmm. uh, to disease. Uh, And um, we're trying to get a a broad expanse of of people of different professions who can offer different information to be able to pass along to everybody. That's our our goal and our objective. Well, I tell everyone, I said, 
you know, you gotta have Parkinson's be in the club, but um, but any relation to Parkinson's at all, you're welcome to come and talk to us. Any relation, I mean, if you have done, someone, you know, put banisters in my house, you know, so he made my house more more um, uh, suitable for me. He's he's invited. Um, we have a financial guy. We, 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 we've got all different people who just, you know, they, they had Parkinson's somehow in their life. Absolutely. And um, come on board. We'll, we'll listen to you. Awesome. Hal's also um, producing a journal uh, on his experience, uh, specifically with the DBS surgery, um, his, his after effects on, on a daily basis. And uh, we'll figure out the best way to share that. Some of it will be posted. Some of it will continue to come up in, in our uh, interviews and in our dialogue. Yes, that, that, that's, that's a bit of a project. Um, I am working on it, and um, it should be ready fairly soon. I should be caught up with that, and we'll let you know. And um, anything you want to know about it, you know, I'll be glad to, we'll be glad to share. We're here to help. Awesome. So we thank everybody again um, for tuning in. I uh, look forward to being able to continue to provide stuff that you want to listen to and appreciate you hanging in and finding out what's shaking. Hey, thank you very much. Shake Take care, away. Everyone. This has been the What's Shaking Parkinson's Podcast. We'd love to hear from you, so please check us out on Facebook at What's Shaking Parkinson's Podcast. You can also email us at What's Shaking Podcast at protonmail.com. Thank you.